0: Take your Bibles, again, let's go to the book of Mark. We're going to read Mark 1, uh, again, from just the very beginning down to verse number 13. Gospel narratives have three purposes. Number one, they're to introduce us to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Number two, they're to convert us into Jesus' disciples, bringing us to faith and repentance. And number three, they're to teach us how to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When you come to a section like this and and the writer is introducing us to the king of kings, the question becomes, how do you introduce somebody who is so uh, rich and in a sense so famous? It's often difficult to know how to do that. Well, Matthew's gospel, which is the gospel of the king, he introduces us with a genealogy and a birth narrative emphasizing Jesus, the royal son of David, including narratives of both Herod and the Magi. And then in Luke's gospel, the Son of Man is introduced with an extended genealogy emphasizing Jesus' parents and their very human situation. In John's gospel, begins by relating his pre-incarnate glory, Jesus as God, Jesus with God, and Jesus the creator God, Jesus the light and the life of the world. A light and life who is God. John uses neither genealogy nor birth narrative all since Jesus is the son of God and he needs neither. And Then you come to Mark's gospel and Mark very simply and very elegantly states his deity and introduces him with neither birth narrative nor genealogy. He simply brings him to begin his work as a suffering servant. And he does so like this in those days. Jesus came. From Nazareth. And we're going to look at Jesus coming this morning. Let's read together then from verse 1 of chapter 1 of Mark down to verse 13. It says this It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice coming out of the heavens You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. I want us to look this morning at those four things. And you have them on your note sheet there. Jesus coming was with a purpose. Number one. Jesus' coming, number two, was marked by baptism. And Jesus' coming, number three, was attended by the Trinity. And finally, Jesus' coming was followed by opposition, which mounted on for the rest of the book. Well, first of all, Jesus' coming was with a purpose. Now, notice in Mark 1, 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, if you're reading the text, you're looking and say. I'm not seeing a purpose stated there, and you'd be right, there isn't a purpose stated there. But it's a good thing to ask a question. Why did Jesus come? What purposes, what answers does the Bible give us about the reason that Jesus came from Nazareth, and came, sorry, not from Nazareth, but from heaven to earth? And I want to give us a list of reasons there. There's a whole bunch of them written down. We'll look at three in the book of Mark, and then a bunch elsewhere a collection elsewhere. In Mark 1 and verse 38, Jesus came to preach the gospel. First of all, he was the full and final revelation of God to all of humanity. Jesus came bringing and proclaiming the good news of God and about God. In Mark 2:17 and Luke 5:32, if you put those two verses together, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. There's a sense of grace and mercy. He came not simply to judge them and judge us. He first came to urge and persuade sinners to repent of their sin so that he might not have to judge and condemn them on his return. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. In Mark ten forty-five, he gives us another reason. He says that Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate expression of love from the Father. He came first to serve and give his life that we would be redeemed and set free. He didn't just come to judge and destroy like he could have. He came first to serve. He also came to set an incredible example for us for how we are to serve one another and what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the highest in the kingdom of heaven was to become the servant of all and the least of all. One of the things that struck me reading through Mark again and again was how often Jesus taught his disciples what it meant to serve. Fourthly, in luke 1249 that says that Jesus came to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish he says it were already kindled. And you say, "What does he mean by that?" And my answer is, I can speculate and think, I think what he means is two possibilities. You say that's two reasons, not one. Well, yeah. Two possible reasons or two possible answers for that. Number one, the Spirit of God coming on earth. And so all of the believers filled with the Spirit will go out across the face of the earth preaching the gospel. That's one possibility. Second possibility is when he says, I came to uh, cast fire on the earth. He's talking about the judgment that's coming in a later day when he's going to finish and do away with the earth and bring a new heavens and a new earth. You say, which of those is it? I'm not sure, but those are my two speculations. John 5.43, the Bible says, Jesus came in his Father's name and they did not receive him. He came, like I said before, to represent the Father to us. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what he said. He also came to represent us to the Father. Coming in the Father's name is representing us or him to us. In John 12, 46, Jesus came as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in him would not remain in darkness. He came as a light. He came to bring us out of the darkness of sin, out of the darkness of the devil's control, and bring us into a kingdom of light. Look at Colossians 1. He rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. That was his purpose in coming. In John 18, 37, Jesus came into the world to testify to the truth. You say, isn't that kind of the same as preaching the gospel? My answer would be, well, sort of, yes. But I think it actually goes beyond that. The gospel is all the good news about God. But testifying to the truth goes beyond that. It's testifying to all the truth of God, the good news and the bad news. And all the things he wants us to learn about being disciples and following him. He came in John uh, chapter, for, sorry, 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came uh, to save sinners. This is his most basic purpose. He came to save us and rescue us from the wrath which is to come. In Hebrews 10, 8 and 9, the Bible says that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He came, I was struck a few weeks ago, I think I've told you probably every week since, but I've been struck by the fact that in John 5 it says, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I always seek the will of my Father. In other words, he's always seeking for God's will before he does or says anything. He came to do the will of God. In 1 John 3 verse 5, this is number 10. Jesus came to take away sins. To deal with and forever. Can you imagine a world where there'd be no sin? It, it actually, you almost can't do it. Because no matter how much you try, there's still our sinful nature that starts to warp and twist even our best estimation and best speculation of what this world would be like if there were no sin. But Jesus came with a purpose to take away sins and deal with them once and for all. In 1 John 3, verse 8, the last one there, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to deal with the devil's work and forever undo it and forever destroy it. Every whisper of the devil in your ear, every work of the devil to upset and counteract and go against the will and the work of God, Jesus came to destroy all those attempts and do away with them. Are there more reasons? Yeah, I'm actually convinced there's a whole lot more reasons. This is just my skimming through the Bible and using some concordance searches to try and come up with all the things that Jesus came to do, all his purposes. But fundamentally, Jesus came to glorify God his Father by his unwavering obedience. Obedience that led even to his death on the cross. The point is that Jesus came with a purpose so how does that teach us how to live as Jesus disciples well unlike Jesus we cannot save sinners that's not our purpose unlike Jesus we cannot take away sins we cannot destroy the works of the devil we can work against those things but we can't destroy them but listen to this We've been sent into the world for very similar purposes to his. And it struck me as I was going through all those things that Jesus came to do, how many of them apply to us. Like Jesus, we've been sent to preach the gospel, right? Yeah, we have. Like Jesus, we've been sent to call sinners to repentance. Listen, Jesus came with a purpose and he began and he fulfilled his purposes on earth. But in a sense, he left us here as his people filled with his spirit to carry on and finish some of those purposes that he began. Like Jesus, we've been sent to serve and give our lives as an ongoing display of Christ's suffering to the world. It's always struck me. In Colossians 1, Paul says, I fill up in my body which is la- that which is lacking of Christ's afflictions. What's he mean? He means that in his own suffering, he was portraying the suffering of Christ to a whole new group of people, a whole new group who hadn't seen Jesus suffer and die on a cross. The sufferings that we're called to bear as believers are to portray to the watching world the sufferings of Christ. We've been called to serve and give our lives an ongoing display of Christ's suffering to the world. Like Jesus... We've been sent in his name. He came in his Father's name. You and I as believers, as disciples in Jesus, have been sent out in Jesus' name to spread his gospel, to do the things that he did. Only you know, he promised. He promised that the works I have done, you will do greater. Did you notice that in the Bible? We've been sent in his name. Like, like Jesus, we've been sent as lights into the world. Like Jesus, we've been sent to testify to the truth. And like Jesus, we've been sent to do the Father's will. in the same unwavering obedience that Jesus did. The question that sort of falls down is, are we doing? Are we doing the things that he has given us to do? Jesus could finish his life and say, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. I've accomplished all that you've given me. I've spoken all the words that you gave me to speak. The question that stands facing us when we consider the fact that Jesus' coming was with purpose is are we fulfilling the purpose for which He sent us and He left us in this world? Jesus did all the way. You say, yeah, but He was the Son of God. It was a little bit easier for Him. Read the Gospel. I don't think it was any easier for Him than it is for us we've been sent and we left in this world to fulfill those purposes. Jesus coming into the world was with purpose and we've been sent into the world with many of the similar purposes as him. Secondly, I want you to notice Jesus coming was marked by baptism. <clears throat> notice in 1 verses 9 and 10 it says this that uh, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately coming up out of the water. So Jesus went down into the Jordan River, and he was immersed below the surface of the river. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now you wonder why would Jesus do this? Now, I don't want to get in trouble for plagiarizing, so I'm going to make sure I give credit here. I listened to a fellow named Mark Dever, uh, Doctor Mark Dever from. Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and he had some great ideas and great points on why Jesus was baptized, and they're excellent. Why would Jesus on, insist to John the Baptist that he should be baptized? Jesus had as much place in the waters of baptism as he did being nailed to a cross, he had no place there whatsoever. Jesus' baptism was not a baptism of repentance or salvation. Jesus was not baptized as a mark of of his repentance from sin and turning to live a life of faith and obedience to God. He was always about his father's business. Remember right back in his youth, a 12-year-old boy in the temple, and his mother comes looking for him. Why did you make us worry? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus always did those things which pleased the Father. He had no need to repent of sin and claim something in salvation. His baptism was not the baptism of repentance or salvation. So then, why did Jesus receive baptism from John? A couple answers to the question. Number one, Jesus was baptized to validate John's ministry. In other words, John had been out there in the wilderness in the Jordan preaching that Jesus was coming, John had been saying, listen, there's one coming after me who's mightier than I. I'm not even fit to get down the floor and untie his shoelaces. He's so much mightier than I. When Jesus came and he entered into his ministry by being baptized, he was validating and authenticating all of John's witness and testimony. So first of all, he came to validate John's ministry. Secondly, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all, All righteousness. Take your Bible and just flip back one book to Matthew 3 and verse 15. And we'll read this together quickly. Matthew 3 and verse 15. Actually, we'll read from verse 13 just to give the context. It says, Jesus arrived from Galilee in the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, like we said before, God's righteousness is God's being right, God's doing right, and God's working to make or declare others right. How is it that Jesus is going to represent us to the Father so he can bear our sin on his body on the cross? He had to identify himself with us. Yes, he came in a fully man. He endured all the things that men endure except sin, but he had to somehow identify himself with us and in order to fulfill all righteousness I think what he's saying is this, I am being baptized to identify myself with the sinners of this world. In other words, I'm going to identify myself with them and relate to them so that when I go to the cross I can bear their sin on their behalf and it's a beautiful thing when you think about it. Why do we get baptized? To identify ourselves with Christ. Why did Christ get baptized? To identify himself with us. I think that's really cool, the way that God worked that out. He said, listen, I'll show them that you're just like them. You'll be baptized, not because of sin, He had no sin, but he baptized, he permitted John, or sorry, sorry, he insisted on John doing it so that he could relate to us and identify with us. Thirdly, the last reason there, Jesus was baptized as an act of consecration. He separated himself to his life of public ministry. Just like when we get baptized, we're showing all the world around us that the old Laura is no longer there. We baptized Laura two years ago, I think. And the old law is gone. And she doesn't live anymore. And the new Laura that came up out of the baptismal waters is a new, saved, regenerated, declared, righteous Laura. There's a change of lifestyle. And when Jesus came out of Nazareth, there was a change of his lifestyle. Gone were the carpenter tools. Gone was living at home. Gone was working with tools and building furniture, whatever he did as a carpenter. All those things were now finished. He now had a new life and a new focus. And it was his public ministry. Jesus was baptized, thirdly, as an act of consecrating, separating himself to his life and his ministry. So what do we learn about following Christ as his disciples? Unlike Jesus, we must be baptized to display to the world the truth of our conversion from sinner to saint and from rebel to redeemed. But, like Jesus, we must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness And you say, how does that work? What it works is righteousness requires obedience to the word of God, right? How are you going to live right before God if you're disobedient to his word? And so if you're a believer here and you've never been baptized, here's the truth of it. We need to follow in obedience Jesus Christ into the waters of baptism and be baptized. So we're baptized to fulfill all righteousness, kind of like Christ was. Like Jesus We're baptized to identify ourselves with Christ. He identified himself with us, and we identify ourselves with him. Like Jesus, we must live a baptized life. Jesus didn't get halfway through his ministry and go, Oh, you know, I miss the woodworking tools. Trust me, as a woodworker, I can understand if he did. Right? It's, it's easy to miss those things. He didn't get halfway through and say, oh, I'm just going to run back to Nazareth and grab my tools and you know, I could possibly do a little work on the side as we travel around. No, he completely consecrated himself to his life and his work. And you and I, once we begin to follow Christ, we are set apart to do the will of Christ. We're set apart to follow Christ wherever he leads us. And whatever he takes us through, we're set apart no longer to live for ourselves, but for Christ. And we're set apart to live by faith in Christ. Baptism marks us as having died to our old way of self-centered living. But we've truly, the question becomes, have we truly died to self, to sin, and to the world? I mentioned that verse before, Galatians 2 and verse 20. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the phrase that catches my attention every time. Christ lives in me. That's a profound statement. And as a baptized person, one who has claimed faith in Christ and has begun to follow Jesus, we are to live as Christ within us. In other words, he has control. He takes the steps. We're like a glove, and he's the hand inside. It's kind of a cheesy illustration, but shows exactly the truth of it. He is the one in us. It's his life lived out through us. He says, I no longer live. I've died to myself. I've died to sin. I've died to the world. And the question for us is, have we died to those things? And is Christ truly living in us? Listen Jesus coming into public ministry was marked by his baptism our commencing our life of faith is marked by our baptism our committing ourselves to follow him and go where he goes and lead and go where he leads well i'm going to take a little bit of time just a little side note to show you something i just i just find so thrilling about reading the bible okay a little side note for you i want you to notice in the verse 10 there There is a phrase that says, he saw the heavens opening. Now, in biblical literature, there is a literary device. I can see all your eyes glazing over. Why would we want to know about that? There is a literary device called an inclusio. Now, inclusio is like two brackets. You ever read through a text, you know, and you're reading along, and all of a sudden you come, and there's an end bracket, right? And you go... Oh, wait a minute, there's an end bracket. Well, where's the first bracket? And you go back and you skim through text and you find the first bracket and you realize that whole section of text was bracketed off to show us something. Well, an inclusio in biblical literature is exactly that. You say, I'm reading my text, I don't see a bracket there, I just see heaven opening. And what inclusio is, is it uses a word or a phrase or a story or a picture at two ends of a significant story to bracket off and show that there's emphasis being placed in that story. When you hit Mark 11... Jesus walks into Jerusalem to go to the temple. He sees a fig tree with no fruit on it, and he curses the fig tree. The next day he comes in, he clears out all the temple stuff. He overturns the tables. He drives out the animals. He sends people running. He says, you have made my father's house a house of thieves. He walks out of the temple. He goes back to the fig tree. And they pass by it. And he talks about the fig tree. So the fig tree is at each end of that story to highlight and emphasize the significance of that story. You know what happens at the very beginning of Mark? I get goosebumps thinking about it. This is so cool. You don't have to get excited. It's all right. At the very beginning of Mark, the very moment Jesus finishes that baptism, he's coming up out of the water. He says, the heavens were torn open and a voice came from heaven. God from heaven spoke and said, this is my beloved son. You know when Jesus died? What happened when Jesus died? Who can tell me? The clouds were there. That's right, there were clouds there. The, the, The idea of tore open. What else tore open when Jesus died? The veil of the temple. That's right. Two tearing opens. You say... What's so significant about that? One tearing open marks the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and another tearing open marks the very end of his public ministry, the moment of his beginning and the moment of his ending. You say, that's the whole gospel of Mark, man. You're kind of like saying the whole thing's bracketed off. And yeah, you're right. It is kind of the whole gospel. You get the, the intro part beginning and another chapter at the end. That's about it. But the beautiful thing is listen, in the torn open veil, there's more than just that thing there. What I'm trying to say is this. There's something tremendously significant in that torn open veil. The book of Ezekiel 1 and verse 1. You remember Ezekiel is down there. He's working by the captives, by the river Chebar. He looks up and he sees the heavens have been torn open. And God reveals himself through that torn open heaven. And the point is this. The revelation of God came through the torn open heavens. The revelation of God came to Ezekiel when the heavens were torn open. The revelation of God in the person of his son came to us when the heavens were torn open. The revelation of the way to God being cleared was when the veil of the temple was torn open. Each tearing open was an act of God towards men. And that's God's grace, isn't it? He didn't, we didn't reach up to him. He reached down to us. And he said, look, and he tore open heaven so we could see for a few moments. And the torn open veil is not so much. We often think it's so that we can go into God. But I don't think that's true at all. I think it's the other way around. I think the torn open veil isn't so much that we have access into the Father's presence because man has always had access by faith in prayer to God. Always, from Genesis to the maps, the torn open veil is so that God may come out from within the veil that separated him from his people. Sacrificial knife has made its final cut. The blood of the sacrifice has been shed to the very last drop. The fire of the offering has gone out. The smoke of the burning incense has cleared away. The sacrifice has been accepted. God is satisfied. That distance between God and man can be eradicated and God can come out. You say, what do you mean by that? Listen, look at the history of the gospel going around the world. Where did it start? Jerusalem. Where's the first place they gathered to pray and preach the gospel? on the steps of the temple, right? they up there and they're all preaching the gospel, people coming into worship and they're standing there going, no, the sacrifice is over, Jesus has died. And the, sac- the gospel goes from there to Jerusalem and then out through Judea and out through Samaria and then, and then around to Europe and India and Britain and finally the gospel comes to the uttermost parts of the earth. Where's that? Australia, right? Where else could it possibly be? And the cool thing is that God revealed himself and stepped out and came in and spread the gospel. The disciples of Christ are those in whom Christ dwells. And God came out of the temple indwelling his people and he reached across the world to gather the nations to himself. Jesus' life and ministry is marked and bracketed by those repeated words, tornos, torn open. There's something else, by the way, highly significant that's mentioned both times of that tearing open. And it's tearing open the first time he, the Father declares, You are my beloved Son. What's the declaration at the end when the heavens are, or the veil is torn open? The centurion turns around and looks up at the cross and says, Truly, this is the Son of God. That's incredible. It's beautiful the way that Mark puts those things together. It's incredibly neat. Jesus is the Son of God. Well, whether you're interested in that or not, I just had to share that. Some of those things are just so cool the way the Bible works. So thirdly, the third point there, Jesus' coming was attended by the Trinity. Notice, he says that at his baptism that the heavens were open and he saw a spirit like a dove descending on him and a voice coming out of the heavens and so on. Mark 1 and 10, Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. In Mark 1 and 10 also, he was impelled or driven by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness after his baptism. In Luke 4 and verse 1, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit after his baptism. In Luke 4 verse 14, Jesus returns... From the temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee, Jesus enjoyed the continual presence and filling and power of the Holy Spirit throughout his life and ministry. Jesus was also testified of and approved by his Father to us. Mark one eleven, the Father identifies himself with Jesus by saying, You are my beloved Son. That's so key. Isn't it neat when someone says, That's my boy, and they're pointing to you, or that's my wife, and they're pointing to you. They don't point to me and say that, they said, that, Ladies, that's my something or other, and they point to you. And there's a neat sense of, Hey, I belong, I'm identified. Somebody's willing to say, Hey, this is my friend, let me introduce you to you, my friend, and you're the one being introduced. There's a sense of, of connection identification, and the Father's words must have been great comfort to the Lord Jesus. Even though they're separated in a sense by time, from time to spirit realm, he says, you are my son. Notice also the approval with which the Father gives him. With you, I am well pleased. I've had lots of times to be identified as somebody's friend or somebody's son or somebody's brother or whatever. They didn't often follow that with a, well, this is my friend and I'm really well pleased with him. They didn't usually say that. She said something entirely different, right? That must have been tremendous comfort to the Lord Jesus staying there. He's coming up and the water's cascading down him. And he hears that voice and he feels the Spirit of God resting on him and filling him. And he hears that voice, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. It wasn't just his baptism that was marked by the, the Trinity all of his ministry was surrounded by the presence of his minist- in presence of the Trinity throughout his ministry. In John five and verse thirty, he did nothing on his own initiative, but he constantly sought his Father's will. In John eight verse twenty eight, he did nothing on his own initiative, but only spoke what his Father taught him to. Jesus gave significant time and attention to to prayer. Despite the busyness of his life, he was always in fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. In fact, the only moment in his entire life when there wasn't that fellowship is on the cross. And Jesus could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for a time, Jesus is absolutely alone. Jesus' life and ministry was conducted and lived out in fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. So, what do we learn about living as Christ's disciples and following him throughout this life? Unlike Jesus, we're not members of the Trinity, and that's very clear. But, like Jesus in his earthly ministry, we are to live our lives in fellowship with the Trinity. Like Jesus, we're to constantly seek the Father's will and blessing and presence. I, again, I've I got to tell you, I just keep getting struck again and again and again. I can do nothing on my own initiative. This is the Son of God. This is the one that created the heavens and the earth. This is the one that spoke into existence all of creation. And he still said, I don't do anything on my own initiative. How many times have you and I dove off on our own initiative to go somewhere, do something, simply thinking that we're doing the right thing, and we've failed to pray To ask God to seek his face and his blessing and his leading. Like Jesus, we are to constantly seek the Father's will and blessing. Like Jesus, we are to abide in Christ. He abided in his Father. We are to abide in him. We are to pray in his name. Asking from him what we will that we might seek it from the Father. The book of John tells us. Like Jesus, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit of God from a moment of our salvation. But we are to live and minister and operate only in the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. How often do we go through this Christian life trying to do it on our own? Trying to finish what God started by the power of the Spirit of God. We try and finish it in the strength of our flesh, the strength of our bones. Like Jesus, we are to be led by the Spirit. We are to live and minister in the power of the Spirit and like, unlike Jesus, sorry, unlike Him, we are to strive for and look for the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus didn't need to look for the fruit. He constantly bought it anyway. You know, there's a big struggle. We often think about the fruit of the Spirit and um, the gifts of the Spirit. And we often wonder, what is the gift of the Spirit in my life? What, how do I figure that out? What do I do to find that out? And I think the reality is we put all the emphasis in the wrong place. If we're striving to know and bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, the gifts of the Spirit will become evident in their own time and in their own way. He'll show us what that gift is. Jesus' coming was attended by the Trinity, and our remaining must be attended, must be lived in fellowship with the Trinity. One last point, and I'll just, I'm will going to abbreviate because we've got not a lot of time left. Jesus' coming was met by Opposition. If you're a really serious Bible student, and you all should lift your heads up and look eagerly, if you're a serious Bible student, go through the stories of the wilderness travels with the people of Israel and look at all the temptations they suffered and all the things that they're looking for to have given to them. And then go to the temptations of Jesus and notice how many correlations there are, how many significant similarities there are. And you know what's really neat? Every time Israel fails in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings, Jesus succeeds. And Jesus passes the test again and again and again. Jesus was led, or sorry, impelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. Verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. is with the wild beasts and so on. Jesus was tempted by the devil. But you know what? How many of you think or have this idea in your mind that Jesus sort of barely got out of there with his life. I've always kind of got this idea in the back of my head that maybe Jesus sort of struggled through it. I was confronted. I was listening to Paul Washer and he listened to something totally different and he kind of did a big bunny trail like other people do bunny trails once in a while and he landed on Jesus' temptation and he said, I'm listening going, oh, this is what he says to say about this. And he said, you know what? We often think of Jesus suffering temptation like he barely made it. He said, that's not true at all. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to endure that temptation. He went there in full realization of his absolutely undeniable victory. He would walk out the victor no matter what. It wasn't even possible for him to fail. You say, Yes, but in his humanity, Jesus was weakened, and he was tired by those 40 days of fasting. He was weakened and tired by the stress of what he was going through, but there was absolutely no possibility of his failing. He didn't pass those tests by scraping through. He passed them with absolute flying colors. He passed the victor. The devil didn't have a chance, in a sense. The other thing I want you to notice, if you look at the stories of the temptation, how Jesus is tempted, and the way he responds to temptation, what's he do? Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse. Here's what he didn't do He didn't just take Bible verses and throw them at the devil like a magic charm. This one will work, and this one will work, and that one will work too. What he did was, Jesus fought temptation not simply by throwing Bible verse to the devil in a magic spell approach. Jesus fought temptation by living in obedience to the word of God. In other words, when he said, um, let's go to Matthew 3. Let's read it so I don't misquote it. Matthew chapter 3, at 4 actually. Matthew 4, what's he say there? Verse 4, he says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He wasn't just quoting that as a good luck charm to get rid of the devil. He was saying that because that's how he lived his life. And the way you and I are going to fight temptation is simply like this. We're not just going to throw Bible verses that we've memorized at the devil when the temptation comes. We're going to live in obedience to the word of God. That's how we fight temptation. That's what we battle it. We battle it by living out the truth. The key to fighting temptation is to live out the scriptures. Live in ongoing obedience to scripture. His life was already in the practice of living by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. He still refused to put the Lord his God to the test. His life practice was to worship and pray only to the Lord his God, who also was with his heavenly Father. In other words, he didn't just fight by throwing verses. He fought by living out the verses that he was using. The word of God was his defense because he was in obedience to it, not just because he had memorized it. Listen, the Pharisees had memorized more scripture than you will ever memorize in your life. And they did not live in obedience to God. And here's the struggle. Too many of us think by memorizing and reading and memorizing, I'm not saying don't read and memorize, don't get me wrong. Too many of us think that by reading and memorize, that equals spiritual maturity. It doesn't. Spiritual maturity and the ability to fight temptation is because we are living out what we have read and heard and believed. Well, what do we learn about disciples? Well, that's a fairly easy one. When unlike Jesus, we will all fail and fall when we're tempted. But grace is available to the tempted and the tried. Like Jesus, we can live and fight against temptation. Memorize scripture, absolutely. Who's here on a memorizing program? Anybody? Anybody? Oh, no. Okay, we got to change that. This year, this week, here's your goal. Here's your homework for the week. Memorize some verses this week. Read, study, memorize Scripture, not simply for the purpose of ticking the little box and saying, I did my duty for today. Read and memorize it that you might live it out. There's more I want to say, but the time is gone, and it's, it's hot in here, so... All the way through this, I've been emphasizing how we as disciples live and learn from what Jesus has done. There's something else that needs to be emphasized too. Jesus came with a purpose to save sinners. and You and I are sinners before the living God. We have failed to glorify God in every thought and word and deed. We've disobeyed God ever since we were on this earth. We began when we were born. We're guilty, all of us, of sin against God. Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for us. Our sin left us with a debt, death itself. His death paid the debt for that sin. And as we're going to look at in two weeks' time, in Mark chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15, when Jesus comes back into Galilee, he preaches the gospel, and this is his message. Repent and believe in the gospel, and in verse 17, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never bowed the knee to Christ. Knowing all these things about Christ's coming and thinking about the purpose of Christ's coming and trying to put that together, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it's totally pointless. And the purpose of the gospel isn't just to introduce us and explain Christ to us. It's to convert us into disciples and followers and believers in Jesus. It's to take us and train us once we have been converted to live as disciples of Christ. He came with a purpose to save sinners. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for us. And he came with a purpose to call sinners to repentance and faith. And Jesus is calling every single person to repent and believe. Because the reality is one day Jesus is coming again. And he will not come as the meek and lowly carpenter from Nazareth, he will come as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will come and set up his throne, and he will judge the nations. And the, the ones that have refused to repent and believe the gospel will be forever cut off and cast into the lake of fire. That's the promise of Scripture. Where do you stand before God this morning? How's your life lived? How are you doing living your life as a disciple for Christ? I'll tell you something, studying through this, reading through some of these texts again and again, my life life is being challenged, especially that text about Christ being, living in me. What that means, what the implications of that are. How many of us live our lives for ourselves even though we've claimed Christ? one of the reasons why I think it's so important for us to go through the Gospel of Mark is to challenge all of us. Every single one of us. How are you living for Christ? You're called to be Christ's disciple. You're called to live the way he lived. Are you? Am I? Can I truly say with Paul, I've died. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It might be a positional truth, but is it a practical truth in your life? Is that how you're living your life for Jesus? Well, let's pray. Father and our God, this morning we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the suffering servant. Father, we thank you that he came with a purpose. He came to glorify you in obedience to you all through his life. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that he came to save sinners. Father, we thank you that he came to testify to the truth. And Father, he told us the truth. In a day to come, there will be many who will stand there and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Father, as we sit here this morning, just a little company of your believers. Father in this hot day father we pray that the spirit of god would have freedom to challenge every single life in this room the challenges as to how we are living for you father we thank you for christ's coming we thank you father for his death father we thank you that he was raised again the third day father we thank you that the work has been finished And, Father, we look at our own lives and we see how far short we are falling of the things that he has left us to do. Father, challenge us. Father, help us as a people not to make peace with the world and not to buy into its thinking and its systems and its ideology, its wealth. Father, they are all the trappings of the world that will one day pass away with a fiery, fervent, burning heat. And Father, we give you thanks that you have prepared good works for us to do. Father, we pray again for Casey Bible Church. We pray that you would spark in us a revival, a renewed commitment to live our lives 100% for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we look at the lives of the disciples and we see how they went through all the nations around the world preaching the gospel. And Father, we realize that every single one of them except for one died a violent death testifying and proclaiming that jesus is lord father help us help us O oh god to not fall into the, the complacency of the world to try and live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven father we ask you to do a work amongst us Father, we thank you for the work that you have done. Father, for those who can't be here for one reason or another this morning, Father, we ask you for your blessing and your help for them. We give you thanks, O God, that you are a loving, kind, and a gracious God. And we thank you, Father, for the salvation that we have through him. We ask you these things, Father, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.